Well, good morning. It's a great joy to be with you today. Uh, this is our centennial year. It's such a wonderful opportunity to celebrate uh, 100 years in history of Asbury. And what I'm doing this year in my sermons is to go back and to uh, remember and recall uh, seven of the great themes which have really defined the very identity of Asbury Theological Seminary. Now, when I think about our, our kind of theme uh, motto for the year, uh, perhaps I think about it differently than you do, so I want to make sure that we're on the same page. The, the motto for the year is thanking God for the past, trusting God for the future. And when you think about that phrase, particularly the first part of that phrase, thanking God for the past, you might be tempted to think that this is where we, you know, celebrate and remember these things that happened in our past where we say, you know, back in 1923, H.C. Marson did that, and back when so-and-so, Jason McFeeders did this, or whatever in our history we want to recall and remember. Okay. The Lord's either telling me that I did something wrong, or the devil is in the details, but I'll keep going. Um, whew, all right. So what does it mean when we say thanking God for the past? For me, it not only means recalling static events that happened in this, this, this year of 100 years, but it's also about remembering things and retrieving things that perhaps we've lost. And quite a few of the themes of this year are in that category. So uh, I wanted to introduce you a, a wonderful word that the Ghanaians have given to us. I'll put it on the slide here. It's the word uh, sankofa. I don't know if you know the word, but sankofa is a twee word. And it's a word that's connected to a, a Ghanaian proverb, which basically says this. It says, it is not taboo. We would say it is not a problem for you to go back and retrieve something that you left behind. It is not a problem to go back and retrieve something that you left behind. Now, I have, I will confess to you, my wife is my witness, I have left my cell phone in various places over the years. And I have this wonderful thing that I hope you have. It's a great gift from God. It's the ability to go into a computer and you can type in your, your ID number for your cell phone, and it will give you a little blue pulsating dot where your cell phone is. So I got home from work church one day, and I, I realized, oh my goodness, I don't have a cell phone. And I thought, well, where did I have it last? I went through the process. And so I did the, I logged on, and I saw this little blue pulsating dot, and I realized, okay, praise God, my cell phone is in Wilmore. That was, that was a good, like, first stop. Then I went a little deeper, and I realized, I thought, oh, it's been out of my office. I thought, no, it's the other direction. Oh, it's at the Free Methodist Church in Wilmore. I had been to that church, that, I'd been there that morning, and my cell phone was on this, the pew. It was embarrassing to have to go up there in the middle of the afternoon, so I had to let us in, doors were locked, and I had to retrieve my cell phone. But thank God for the Ghanaians. It's okay, it is not a problem to go back and retrieve something that you have lost. Praise God for that. It's okay. If you leave something precious behind, it's okay to go back and get it. 
So, for example, last time I preached on entire sanctification, this is like the defining doctrine of our movement. Wesley called it the grand depositum. He says it's for this very reason we've been chiefly set forth, and yet so much we, you know, we kind of gradually drift into kind of a generic evangelicalism, and we need to be part of my job as president is not just envisioning the future, but also saying, wait a minute, let's don't lose these great truths which have defined Asbury Seminary, and one of those is the doctrine of sanctification. Well, today, in a, in a similar way, uh, is the recollection and the retrieval of this, these great phrases to evangelize and to spread scriptural holiness throughout the world. These are really important. They find themselves in our very founding documents. That is the purpose, the mission of Asbury, is to evangelize and to spread scriptural holiness throughout the world. Now, if you grow up, you know, in, in the world that you grew up in, especially, you are acutely aware that the Western world has dramatically changed. I'll never forget, uh, this is back before I came to Asbury, when I was, doing, I was a missiologist at Gordon-Conwell, and our research center at that time produced this book called uh, Global Christian Trends. And one of the most fascinating uh, graphs and charts that we produced was uh, Todd Johnson had determined 15 metrics to measure whether a people group was resistant or open to the gospel. And what he discovered through this metrics application around the world to 24,000 people groups was the top 10 most resistant people groups in the world are located in the Western world. And the top 10 most responsive people groups in the world are in India and China. So I totally get it. We, we under, there's no one today that could sit where you're seated and not recognize that you're going into a world that requires an, an embodiment as an evangelistic ministry. It doesn't matter what world work you're involved in, that's part of what it means to be a Christian in the Western world today. But that being said, we cannot also, we cannot forget the fact that there are people groups in the world today that have never heard the name of Jesus and who have no access whatsoever to the gospel unless somebody crosses a cultural linguistic barrier. That is a reality that everyone in this room should be aware of. And I want you, as you reflect on your ministries, to have that openness to whatever God might call you. Now, our text today is a great text because Luke actually highlights this in a very dramatic way. Our text opens up with the Lord appointing... And by the way, the word there, this, this uh, anadikoneo, it's, it's a word that means it's more than a point. It's kind of like between a point and anoint. It's a very powerful word where he is setting aside, lifting up 70 or 72, we'll come back to the, the number difference later, who is going to send them out two by two. Now, when you read that, don't confuse this with the other synoptic text that's found in, in, uh, in like Luke 9, just the chapter before this, and in Mark 10, and in Mark 6 and Matthew 10, where Jesus sends out the 12. Okay, Jesus has already sent out 12 disciples on a Galilean mission to Jews. The 12 disciples, of course, are meant to symbolically represent the 12 tribes of Israel. And here we have Luke telling us, and Luke is the only one who gives us the account of Jesus sent this larger group of 70 or 72. Why does he send out 70 or 72? 
But before we get to that, just realize Luke is actually particularly interested in the Gentile mission. Luke is particularly interested in the trajectory of the gospel. He de- he's not satisfied to le- leave us with the death, resurrection, ascension of Christ. He wants to bring it on out, book of Acts, and show us the trajectory of the whole thing, right? So Luke is really interested in where this whole thing is going. Luke has already given us, for example, in the early part of this gospel, he's when it gives us in Luke 2 the story of Simeon in the temple, where Simeon comes in, he holds Jesus, and he says, you've prepared in your presence for all peoples a light for the revelation to the Gentiles. Only found in the gospel of Luke. Luke is the one who gives us the genealogy of Jesus, which of course Matthew gives us, but Matthew traced genealogy back to Abraham. Luke traces the genealogy back to Adam. Okay, he's, he sent a message there that Jesus is for all people. So this is a very, very important passage. And here that Jesus is saying things which should, you should feel the shock of it when he says, okay, go out. And the language is very similar in terms of, you know, don't take a lot of supplies with you. I send you out like lambs among wolves. Don't take a purse or a bag. All that is very similar in almost identical language of the admission to the, um, to the Jews. But then he says, twice actually, when you enter a house, eat and drink whatever they give you. And then he repeats it in, ver- in verse 7. Stay in that house, eating and drinking whatever they give you. Now, do you realize what a, what a radical thing this is? Telling you, go out, you go, you're going to meet all kinds of Gentiles, eat whatever they give you. And this is, what he's saying is this is something eschatological is happening. This is something that is breaking in, that's going to break us out of the normal Jewish restrictions where they had serious restrictions on who you could eat with, who you could have meals with, what you would eat, all of that. Eat whatever's put before you. This is the, the, the origin, by the way, of the great missionary prayer that every missionary learns. Lord, where you lead me, I will follow. What you feed me, I will swallow. Here it is. So Luke is purposely connecting us to this larger vision. Now back to the 7072. Uh, my text uh, says uh, 72. You heard uh, Emily read the text a minute ago from the RSV, which says 70. Uh, you, you go through all the translations. They're roughly divided between 70 and 72. Why? Well, this is one of those moments where you actually come across a textual variant and you say, praise God. Because the textual variant actually clarifies exactly what's going on in this passage. Because when he sends out the, the 70 or 72, it's clearly a symbolic number, just the way the 12 was symbolic of Israel. This is the number of the nations. Now, if you go back to Genesis 10, you'll recall that Genesis 10 is a list of all the nations of the world. This is after, the, after Noah, before the call of Abraham in Genesis 12. So in that Genesis 10, which is a list of nations, you'll see a long list of people groups, which they regarded as kind of like the seminal nations of the world. So it becomes symbolic of the nations of the world. Now, if you go back and count them, and I have done this. I want to say, Dr. Oswald's here, before God, I have done this. I have opened up the Hebrew Bible, and I have counted every one to make sure that the Jewish tradition is correct. And if you count... In Genesis 10, the table of nations, it comes out to 70 nations. But if you go to the Septuagint, the Greek version of the Old Testament, 
You remember they didn't have spaces between words? That, that was a great invention, wasn't it? <laughs> it was a great invention. I want to meet the person who did that. But they didn't have spaces in the, in the words. So we go through the Septuagint. They divided the, not the, the nations differently in two places. And guess what? In the Septuagint, it's 72. So all of you know that by the time of the first century, the, 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 kind of the, uh, the, the Old Testament of usage is the Septuagint. So that means that in, very early on, they're going to go, oh, no, no, they must have been 72, because we know it's pushing back to Genesis 10. So the point being is that this is, in my mind, irrefutable evidence that the number of the nations, it doesn't really matter whether it's 70, 72. What matters is that they are clearly, this number is symbolic, saying that I am now sending you out to the nations, to all the nations of the world. Now, granted, this is only preparatory. This is before the Great Commission, before the resurrection. They only probably go to two or three people groups. This is not, you know, this is a very, very, you know, seminal kind of beginning. But this is connecting us to the trajectory. This is connecting us to that, that grand vision that starts out with Genesis 12, 3. In your seed, all nations will be blessed. You know, Psalm 87, we saw that, you know, with this great declaration. These nations are born in her. This is connected with Isaiah 49 6. It's too small a thing for you to be my servant to restore the tribes of Jacob and bring back those of Israel I have kept. I will also make you a light to the nations. So, this is that trajectory that leads to the Great Commission, ultimately, Revelation 7 9, where he sees before him his eyes, multitude that no one can count from every tribe, every nation, every tribe, every people, every language. This is the great arc. And this is the point, right here is the point where this kind of comes out of Palestine, the Greco-Roman world, the Mediterranean Basin, Europe, North Africa, Syria, Central Asia, the depths of Africa, India, Latin America, North America. It all begins right here, emerging out of the text to show us the people of God are intended to go to the nations of the earth. And that, by the way, this is not should not be heard as like a job that we're supposed to do. That, that is really to underhear this. This is not like, oh, we have to go witness to the world or evangelize the world or plant churches around the world, and this is like on our to-do list, like ecclesial to-do list. No, no, what, what it's saying is this is what God is doing in the world. This is God's mission in the world. God is doing this work, and he invites us to participate with him in his mission in the world. This is his mission, his work. Christ embodies it, the Spirit empowers it, and we are part of that in the world. Now, there are about 24,000 people groups in the world. Uh, if you go to the like, United Nations list, and you know what, 250 nations of the world, countries of the world, but biblically, the, God does not see the world like that. He sees the world as peoples, 24,000 of them, and there are thousands of people, groups in the world that have never heard the gospel a single time. And I think it's important to recognize if you were to maybe get the point of the difference between the evangelistic ministry of the church and what it means to spread scriptural holiness throughout the world, there is a real difference between the church's understanding of what it means to evangelize and to really bring the gospel to all peoples. And let me illustrate this way. If you were to say, let's just, let's just imagine 
the most optimal evangelistic situation we can possibly imagine. And that is to say that with one click of the finger, everybody, every Christian in the world gets anointed to be a Billy Graham. That's pretty optimistic. So everybody gets the evangelistic gift, bang. Not only that, you get something even better than Billy Graham got. Every single person you witness to will come to Christ instantly. Now that, is that optimism? I mean, that's the glass full, right? That is the glass full, all right? So here's a church where every Christian is an evangelist, and everyone you witness to instantly comes to Christ. We couldn't help them more than that. You stop a bus in the middle of the street, you know, you get, go ahead and tell they all come to Christ. You go down to, the, to work out, and you're, you do your workout, and everybody comes to Christ. You know, you walk into any school, any business, where, they all come to Christ instantly. Like, this is amazing. Okay, this, there would just be this huge, explosive, evangelistic explosion on the whole world. And right now, there's about 2.2 billion Christians, roughly. There would be a billion new Christians in the world if that happened. A billion. All right? This would be like a gigantic step forward from 2 billion to 3 billion Christians all in one day or whatever it took. And that, that's good. That's amazing. I pray for that. But the point being is after that was all done, there would still be a billion people who had never heard the name of Jesus. Is that's the point. It, it, this, this cannot be accomplished through even the most vigorous, uh, dedicated, anointed, and successful fruitful evangelism. Because there are people groups in the world that there is no one in their friends, neighbors, family, business, associates. They have, there is no one in their circle that is to share the, the gospel. That no one, someone has to cross and learn their language. Someone has to cross into their cultural group. And there are literally hundreds of millions of people in that situation. There are hundreds of millions of people who do not have even John 3.16 in their language. Believe me, it is thousands of people groups with not even one verse of Scripture in their language. Now, not everybody's called to that, but everyone in this room and hearing of this, people that are online, all of you should reflect on your ministries and say, Lord, whatever you have for me. Isn't that, isn't that the right stance? If you have gifts in Greek or Hebrew, why not consider doing translation work, or going to the ends of the earth with the gospel. And there are many under people groups, even here in North America. So this is what happened. The, right here in Luke 10, the gospel goes forth and it begins to spiral out. And right in the New Testament, we find that the gospel is much bigger than Judaism as a group of disciples from Cyprus and Cyrene began to preach the gospel to Greeks. They do it, they, they cross this barrier. And it says, they tell them the goodness of the Lord Jesus Christ. And there the gospel begins to spread. And by the second century, Antioch is the largest church in the world. And of course, is the sending church for the Apostle Paul on his missionary journeys, which were not evangelistic campaigns, but church planting adventures to plant the church all in the Mediterranean basin. By the fourth century, this persecuted sect brings down the Roman Empire. And what was amazing about that is the church is emerging, uh, Rome, Rome is sacked in 410 AD, the whole culture is collapsing, and of course they use this, this uh, horrible term, barbarian, the barbarian invasions, 
right? Because all these people were coming in. But they were, these were people groups, Vandals and Goths and Saxons and Visigoths, all these. And the church said, let's bring them the good news. And the church evangelized them, and they became better Christians than the Romans had ever been. It was amazing. The church took it. They, they just they kept on taking it. They kept on moving forward, and the gospel continued. That's what gives us the church, people like St. Augustine, and the Eastern Empire now in Constantinople brought the gospel to the Eastern world. And later, great Celtic saints like Aidan and Columba and St. Patrick just went out and brought the gospel to the western part of the empire. And the gospel spread a whole, all along the Persian route, all on the Silk Route, all the way. And one of the most amazing things is that the gospel was being preached in what today is England. At about the same time, it was being preached uh, by the, by, in, in the imperial courts of China by Alopin. It's like only 70 years apart. The gospel is reaching both east and western world. Even during the dark days, when the church was trying to militarily win the Holy Land back from Islam, we shouldn't forget that people like Raymond Lull were bringing the gospel to the heart of the Islamic empire, known as the apostle of love in an age of hate. Cyril and Methodius bringing the, the gospel, trailing the gospel into the, into the Syriac tongue. Raymond Lull, Vladimir draping the steeps of Russia. All of this, and even in the, in the, by the time of the reclamation of the Reformation, the reclaiming of the gospel, you have this explosion of missionaries who went out bringing the gospel like William Carey and Adnarm Judson and Hudson Taylor and C.T. Studd and Amy Carmichael and Lottie Moon, Gladys Aylward, and on and on it goes, who planted the church all over the world. And today's fruit of the gospel globally is largely because that incredible uh, commitment to global evangelization. This is actually the stream that we are calling you to connect to that ultimately leads us to Revelation 7, verse 9. Now, when you have these kind of explosion of the gospel, of course, there are, you know, there are always challenges. There's always people who, you know, want to tell us that this is no longer viable for the church. But I would tell you that even if the host of hell assails against us, greater is he that's in you than he's in the world. Amen? Amen? Even if the world says there is no God, guess what? Jesus is still on the throne. Even if uh, the, the world says the evangelistic mandate is a complete waste of time and there's no, where they shame us for evangelizing, we still believe that the gospel is the power of a God and the salvation for everyone who believes. Nebuchadnezzar can, you know, heat up his furnace seven times hotter. But God still has his Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego's who have not bowed to the idols of this world. Pharaoh can chase us to the banks of the Red Sea, but God is still our waymaker. This is the gospel that we believe. And I want everyone in this community, when they think about their ministries, to recognize two really important points that Luke is pointing us to in the reason he included the mission of the 70 in his gospel. The first is the question of access. We believe that every people group in the world, every person in the world deserves to have access to the gospel, amen? And therefore we should pray there'll be no one who does not have access to the gospel 
Secondly, is the question of viability. There are many examples of churches all over the world where there are Christians here, there, 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 they're scattered around, but they're not yet at the point of viability. Okay, viability, it's a, it's a huge issue in theology, how we measure viability, I won't go into it here. But the point is, there are churches that need assistance in discipling people, the Christians that they do have, in order to empower them to plant churches and to really reach their, people, their own people for Christ. And I believe there are people here today that would say, Lord, I want to be a part of that, helping a church, help maybe a people who've never heard the gospel, or a church that is struggling, that has very few Christians, but they need help in being taught and trained and being viable. This is a great opportunity. And I want to encourage you to, if you're interested or have an interest at all, just to send an email. How about this for a response? Send an email to president at asburyseminary.edu, and I'll plan a luncheon for all those who are interested in talking more about it. Let me say this in closing. When I was uh, in India, we followed exactly this loop. This was actually the, the way we established our church planning work. And we really believed, took this seriously. We went into villages and we prayed for a man of peace. And after doing this, and this is, I did this for decades. This is a, long, a lot of experience with this, this kind of thing. And what I found was that when we prayed, and you never, you never knew, you never knew about a village, whether there would be a, a person of peace or not. But my experience overall was the man of peace was very often a woman of peace. That happened a lot. I mean, a lot. You almost always found a woman in a village, the first person who is willing to open their doors and allow you to enter into that village. It's like the story of Paul. He got the vision of the Messianic man, but he met Lydia on the banks of the river. That's exactly our experience. And i never forget, we were in a place called Sanji. Now, Sanji is such a stronghold of Buddhism in India that when we first even raised the question of whether we should go and preach the gospel in Sanji, even our own eager students said, I don't know about that. And they said they would go only if we preceded it by a year of prayer and fasting. We said, okay, we'll do that. So we had a year of prayer and fasting that God would find a person of peace in Sanchi who would open the door for us. And so that happened. There was, no, there was not a single believer in Sanchi. Now, Sanchi, the reason it's a stronghold is this is the place that has the ashes of the Buddha. It's a very, it's one of the most sacred spots in all of Asia. And from all over the world, world pilgrims come. This is like the, the, Buddha, the Buddhist version of like Mecca, you know, for Muslims. They come here from all over the world. They park their bicycles or their cars or buses will stop there, and they go up this mountain. Many of them will crawl on their hands and knees, and they go to the top of this mountain, and there they will encounter this shrine that contains the ashes of the Buddha. On the providence of God, the woman of peace, right in this text, he said, you know, when you enter a house, first say, peace to this house. If a man of peace is there, your peace will rest on him. So the peace of God was extended to us from a woman who owned a home right at the foothold of this stupa, this, this little holy mountain, right at the foot of it, at the entrance of the whole thing. So that was our beginning of all places. I never forget one Sunday. I was in that house, house. We had at that point maybe seven believers 
in Sanchi. And I was preaching there on the text in Revelation where Jesus says, you know, I, I was dead and behold, I'm alive forevermore and I hold the keys of death and hell. And I was preaching on that passage and right out the window, as I was preaching, were these pilgrims that were, were marching, crawling up, and their greatest hope, their greatest hope was to see, to come in contact with the ashes of the Buddha. I never got said to this, the, the few believers that day, I said, you know, I said, isn't it wonderful that there's no place you can go in the world to find the ashes or remains or bones of Jesus Christ? If they found the bones of Jesus Christ, let's all go home. Let's all become Buddhist. Because the gospel is about a living Savior. He's a risen Lord. This is for the whole, all nations, all peoples. This is the good news of the gospel. We serve a risen Savior. And he is arisen from the dead, and that we've called, he's called us to go out and share this good news, the power of the gospel for all peoples. And so I hope and pray that Asbury will do a little sankofa, a little holy retrieval, and we will never, ever forget, despite all the challenges we face, that we are called to evangelize and to spread scriptural holiness throughout the world so that all peoples, every tribe, every language, every people, every nation will know about the good news of Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. Amen.